Going right along with what Brother Mike was saying is probably everyone's heard the motivational expression, today is the first day of the rest of your life. It is used to encourage a person to forget the past with his failures, his disappointments, his heartaches, and all the negatives of the past. But it can also mean to forget the accomplishments, the trophies, the highs, the positives of the past. Today is a new day. Dwelling on the negatives will bring discouragement, but also dwelling on the positives will tend to make you lazy and get you to take the foot off the gas pedal. Jesus taught in his great sermon, which I call and I believe is the greatest sermon ever ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, he says in Matthew 6.34, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day, for the day is its own trouble. Instead of fretting over what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear or where you're going to live, you should strive for one thing, and that's found in Matthew 33. 633. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the major. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what? All these things will be added unto you. When we focus on tomorrow, what is it that happens? We lose focus for today. Let me give you an example. Josie and I use the Dave Ramsey envelope system for our spending. We have an envelope for budget categories and we push, put cash in it to track and to limit our spending. Actually, I think it was my mom that invented that, that system because it works. Anyway, I had withdrawn cash to fill the grocer's envelope for the next two weeks. I brought it home on Thursday in advance because I wasn't going to go back to work, and I stashed it away. So as I headed up to my office to prepare for this message, I thought, I better, I better get down there and put stock up the grocery envelope in case Josie wants to go to the store. And guess what? I forgot where I stashed it. So I would tear in my, my bedroom apart. I couldn't, I couldn't find it. So what was the net effect of all that? The time that I should have spent studying was now spent in searching and in worrying. Finally, I said to myself, I will look for it later. Right now I need to study. But you know, I could not concentrate worrying about that I had might have misplaced that money. And Josie tried to assure me by saying, Ah, oh, don't worry, I, I will look for it and I will find it. And I should have known that she would. That woman can smell money a block away. It must be an innate trait, I guess. Well, within minutes, she came up to me, holding it in her hand, and with a big smile saying, Ta-da! <laughs> worry can make you lose focus. So today as we enter a new year, which is a symbolic new start for us, I say to you, today is the first day of the rest of your life. Let us heed the advice of the Apostle Paul when he tells us in Philippians 3, 
13 to 14. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead, I press forward to the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We press forward to that one goal that is before us, which is to spend eternity with Jesus Christ. That is our main goal. Too many times we set lofty goals for ourselves that we end up abandoning for the lack of commitment or more often for the lack of planning. And we start gangbusters, but we end up abandoning it altogether. This is the time of year where people are making New Year's resolutions. And if you're like most people, you probably made a couple. And they probably have to do with losing weight or getting more exercise or something to that effect. And I believe that that, uh, most resolutions are made because a person is displeased with their present situation and wants to change. However, as most of us know, changing lifelong patterns, are, they are so hard to break. It doesn't matter if they're eating patterns or exercise patterns or whatever. Set ingrained patterns are hard to change. The same is true in the church community with spiritual matters. Just about everyone I know believes that their time spent in prayer or in studying scripture or even in regular church attendance is lacking. They want to do something about it, but changing is just so difficult. But I tell you, in the final analysis, it boils down to one thing, and that's stewardship. How we care for what we have been given That stewardship. What is the most important? Think about it. The most important valuable possession that you have here on earth. Don't get too spiritual on me. We'll get to that in a minute. It's not your car. It's not your house. It's not your 401k. It's your health. Without it, none of the other things mean anything. If you don't have a health, it doesn't matter how many millions you have in the bank. So being a good steward of your body, how well you take care of it, will determine your quality of life. Now let's get spiritual. Consider the spiritual side when I ask, what is your most valuable possession? It's not your Bible. It's not your church membership card. It's your soul. Jesus asked the same question in Matthew 16 and 26 when he asks, For what profit is it a man, is it to a man, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? How you care for your soul will determine the quality of life that you have for eternity. In the very next verse in Matthew 16 and 27, Jesus promised, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. And your decisions 
Your actions right now will determine the quality of life you have for eternity. And that's a long time. How long? Well, think about the verse that we sing, Amazing Grace, the fifth verse, and it goes, When we've been there 10,000 years, we've no less days than when we first began. That's a long time. Let's put 10,000 years in perspective. The first Christmas, we just celebrated Christmas, the very first Christmas, when did it happen? About 2,015 years ago. That's about a fifth of the 10,000 years. Folks, what I'm getting at, eternity is a long, long time. Where do you want to be? It's all about stewardship, taking care of what you have been given. And it's based on the decisions that you make today. You see, we serve a God of second chances while we are here. Once you leave earth, that's it. The die is cast. So again, I say today is the first day of the rest of your life. And let's resolve to be good stewards of our souls of what God has entrusted with. with. Let me give you an example again. She's looking at me. I'll use Josie again and I'll turn this way. When Josie and I lived in California, we had some very to get arounders. One year our car broke down and we had no way to get around. And if you know the L.A. area, it is vast. So my mom drove her fairly new Ford Falcon wagon to California and let us have it for the summer so we could get around till we can get our car. You see, that car was not our car. It was our mom's car. We used it, but we had to take care of it. We had to wash it. We had to change the oil. We had to... Be careful that it didn't get dinged. You see, we were stewards of that car. That is also the the biblical definition of stewardship. God has given us gifts, and we need to learn how to be good managers of those gifts. So let's talk about that for a few minutes and, and learn right from Scripture. In Scripture, we find all the information that we need for everything in life and beyond. Let's read as Jesus teaches us using the parable of the talents. It is found in Matthew 25 beginning in verse 14. You see here in Matthew 25 Jesus gives a series of three parables teaching about his second coming. So let's read verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Right here, Jesus is preparing his disciples that he was going to go away. Because after this, things begin to unfold rather rapidly uh, and rather quickly. Because these are Jesus' final days. In the very next chapter, we find the scene of the Last Supper and his arrest. So here he was preparing his disciples for his departure and begins with a parable with this nobleman going away and entrusting his wealth To his servants. So, here the first thing we need to know is that everything, all his wealth, it is his wealth, and that we are entrusted with it. It all belongs to God. He has entrusted us with it. 
Listen to uh, Psalms 50, verses 10 to 12. For every beast of the forest is mine. This is the Lord talking. And the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all of its fullness. Do you get it? Everything on his earth, on this earth, is his. Your car is his. Your house is your bank account. Your 401k, his, his, his. It's all his. The reason we give our tithe back to him is to acknowledge that it's not ours, but it's his. The sooner we come to terms with that, the sooner we'll move into this into a blessed life. Oh, I'm not talking about earthly riches. I'm talking about moving into the spiritual blessings that will be released into our lives. You will be amazed how God can use what you have to multiply to meet your needs. Think of what he did with two fish and five loaves. I mentioned earlier having lean years in California. Once I learned to trust God with my obedience to the tithe, this things got a whole lot easier for us. Let me tell you, as an L.A. County employee, I was earning $900 a month before taxes. And I had three teenage kids to raise. And I had to pay rent in California. If you know, that's not cheap. I don't know how we did it, but we did it. And you know, teenagers, they don't want knockoff clothes. Teenagers, you want knockoff clothes? You want the real deal. So I don't know how he did it. But you see, once we became obedient to the tithe, money just seemed to go farther. And it wasn't because I got a raise or a promotion. Yes, Josie was working too, but she didn't make all that much either. So it had to be God. Try it. It works. Psalm 34 and 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts him. Once we realize and accept that God owns everything, we need to understand the second principle in this, in this as of stewardship. We may, not own, we may not own everything that he's given us, but we are responsible for managing it. Let's read some more of the parable beginning in verse 15. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on on a journey. Then he who had received five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. We see here that God had entrusted his servants with varying amounts of money. One question you may have is, why the difference? Why did he give some five and others just two and other one? Well, the answer is found there in verse 15 when he says, he gave to each according to his own ability. God will only give us to the extent that we can handle, be it temptation, be it trials, 
even riches. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, speaking of temptation, tells us that God will not give us more than we can handle. And it stands to reason in my mind that it also applies to other things that me that be in, in overwhelming. Let me tell you another California story, okay? It speaks to this point. We had just come to the Lord. We were infants in the Lord. We had been listening to a lot of prosperity messages, and we wanted our share of the pie. So we drove around. As we drive around to a better side of the town, we saw some really nice houses for sale. These were houses that no way, no how, on $900 a month could I have ever afforded. But according to what we were being taught, we started to claim them. So we got this great idea. I know how God can bless us. So we ran to the convenience store and bought a lottery ticket. I still remember Josie and I kneeling before the Lord, and I just knew that he was going to cause those numbers to fall in that pattern to that ticket we had bought. Needless to say, we didn't win the California lottery that year. We were still infants in the Lord. Who knows that a sudden influx of material riches at that point would lead to, the, to our destruction God knew. Here the Lord is teaching, here in this parable, is teaching with an analogy. So we must ask, what do these talents represent? I believe it stands for everything that God has entrusted us in our lives while he is away. It is money, it could be talent, skill, resources, whatever. And he is expecting us to handle them well. You see, into every life, God has poured a varying amount of three things. Time, talents, and treasures. But also, God, notice that God expects us to put those things to work for the betterment of his kingdom. So then the issue is, what are we going to do with that? God has entrusted it to us. So what are we going to do? God has given us life potential and he has expected us to use them to do business for him and his kingdom. Each one of us has a certain amount, apparently some more than others. That is the case with time. We do not all have the same amount of time because if you know, some die in their 20s and some live to be 90 and beyond. We don't all have the same amount of money. Some were blessed by well-to-do parents, while others, like Josie and I, who grew up in one of the poorest neighborhoods of San Antonio, don't have that much. And some have more talents and abilities than others. I'm thinking about Thursday night, New Year's Eve, as I look up on the stage, and I see all the fishers there, except Ryan, and I know he's going to be there soon. They are extremely talented, and they have used their talents for the Lord's work. The fishers, one other thing that I want you to understand, when Jesus comes back and he holds us accountable, he's only going to hold you accountable what he has entrusted you with. Jesus will not compare you with anyone else. It will just be you answering for what he has entrusted you. 
The fishers will have to answer for how they used their tremendous talents and abilities. And the Saldanias will have to answer only for the talents and abilities that they were given. The day of reckoning is coming, folks. I work for Duke. Everybody say, go Duke. Okay, you don't have to. I work for Duke, and every year we are given an employee performance evaluation. It is an opportunity for Duke to measure the uh, productivity as an employee. And most jobs, and probably most of yours, have the same process. In the same manner um, uh, of, of a time of evaluation is coming for all of us. When Jesus Christ returns, he's going to evaluate our productivity as his stewards. Let's continue with a parable in verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of these servants came and settled accounts with them. When Jesus returns, he will want to know how his kingdom benefited by what you have, he has provided for you. I am pretty confident that most of us will be able to, to show him our gifts and how we've really benefited by them. See, Jesus, how I've been able to live comfortably in this house you have provided. See, Lord, how I was able to send my kids to college. But that's not what Jesus will want to know. What he will want to know is how good uh, uh, your stewardship has been with his things. And, and what he wants to know, really, the bottom line, is how did his kingdom do under your management? Is the king better off? Did you advance his agenda under your watch? All believers will have their own day of judgment. That's separate from the believer's judgment. All believers will be called to give accounts in what the scripture calls the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 10 to 11, the Apostle Paul describes that event. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord we pursue, persuade men. Folks, there is a time coming where we must all stand before him. Hebrews 10 and 30 tells us that the Lord will judge his people. Again, I say that we must understand that this is not referring to the judgment of the unbelievers. It is talking about that, those in the body of Christ, And I have people say to me all the time, or many times, Oh, I'll be happy if I just have a little shack in heaven, as long as I make it. What a sad statement that is. If you're one of those, let me me read you more on that day. And why it should make you shudder to make a statement like that. 1 Corinthians 3, 10-15. According to the grace of God, which has given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one of you take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay that, than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So then, knowing that your work is going to be tested, should we not try to give our best? God does not appreciate shoddy workmanship any more than human bosses do. What would happen if in our jobs, if we showed up when we wanted to, or if we're constantly coming in late? What would happen if our reports that we turned in has full of misspellings and bad grammar? Well, I tell you, you can forget about being an employee of the year. Yet some treat God exactly like that. God paid an extreme high price for you and me. The price was his son's life. And then he entrusted us with ruling his kingdom here on earth. Yet many Christians give God their leftovers. They tip God by the way they, by the way they live. And by the way they live, they say, God, whatever's left over of my time, I'll give to you. After I have spent my money on what I want, then I'll give you something. And I'm using the word tip generously here because most people, when they eat out at a restaurant, tip the waitresses 15, sometimes 20%, while they give a dollar or two when the plate comes around. You can't even buy a loaf of bread at Food Line with that. Let me quote from Dr. Evans from the book that we've been looking at on Wednesday nights. So you don't get mad at me. You get mad at him. He lives in Dallas. After all he has done, and I quote, after all he has done for us, are we to turn around and give God our leftover time, talents, and treasures? Are we going to give the school district our best teaching efforts and then throw something together on Saturday night to teach the kids at Sunday school? Are we going to spend thousands of dollars on our houses and cars and clothes and then toss a little tip toward God? Are we going to spend time on ourselves and tell God he ought to be happy that we show up for two hours on Sunday? No. God said all this cost him too much to let us get away with shoddy stewardship. He, we are going to be evaluated, end of quote. This is what God expects for his son, Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians 1 and 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the first form, firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Let me say that again, that in all things he, Jesus Christ, shall have all preeminence. So now let's look at the rewards of stewardship. The nobleman has returned 
and he calls his servants to give accounts. So the first one steps up. Verse 20. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. He said, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. This guy receives and exceeds expectations on his employee Val. He has doubled his investment, and, he, and now he gets three rewards. The first, he gets public recognition. There in front of the millions gathered before God, God will say to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. If you're one of the ones that have labored in the background where no one sees, for, uh, and, and you've labored for the Lord and apparently no one notices, take heart. Because the Lord will one day declare you a good and faithful servant for the whole congregation of the entire world to hear. Well done. The second reward is a promotion. He was given authority in the kingdom. God says to him, you are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. This should tell us that the kingdom of God is, is constructed of, of, a, of a structure of government with authority. And in that government, the authority is given to those who are faithful servants of Jesus Christ here on earth. And the third reward is a bonus. Some of you may have got a Christmas bonus, but this bonus, he, he gets, he received the talent that was taken away from the one wicked and lazy servant. More on him in a minute. Let's look at the, let's look at the last uh, servant, the second servant. He also would receive two talents, uh, came and said, Lord, you delivered me to two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The second one also gets a good evaluation. Using Duke's scale, let's say he got a meets expectations. He gets two rewards. The first one, he gets the public declaration from God, and he's also given authority in the power and power in the kingdom. I wish I could stop there, folks. I really do. I wish I could just end the service and say they all lived happily ever after. But scripture doesn't stop there. I agonize over the rest of, of this parable. It challenges everything I understood about salvation. I even texted past, uh, Brother uh, Matt last night. If you want to take the entire uh, service for worship, that'll be fine with me. Do it. I wasn't being manipulative. I honestly did feel that God is trying to work, break through in worship here at Bethel. When there is a breakthrough in worship, God's presence will be overwhelming. But, when, but we have only tested so far. The best service that we've ever had when God's presence was manifest, we only got a little tidbit of God's presence. 
But when his presence erupts, when it comes through in its fullness, there will not be anyone left standing in this place. We will all be flat on our faces before him. We will be like the Apostle John in Revelations 1 and 17. And when I saw him, I fell as dead and as, as, at his feet. That, folks, is the only possible reaction we can have to the, in the presence of the Almighty in the presence of the Most Holy One. We will quake like Isaiah did. Listen to how he describes being in God's presence in Isaiah 6. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I want us to experience that. But that doesn't absolve me from preaching all his word. The apostles exhorted in Timothy 2, 4, 1 and 2, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. I will be judged also and I don't want to be in that third group. But even though I do not want to get to this last part, I must. Let's read it. Then we who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you had not sown and gathering what you had not scattered seed. But I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Even the way he approached the master is wrong. Master, I know what kind of man you are. I do not want to take a chance in losing your stuff. So here it is like you gave it to me. I like how Dr. Evan represents him and I quote. This man said, Master, I just want you to know that I didn't lose your money. I kept it safe and sound under my mattress. I took the time, talents, and treasures you gave me and stored them away because you are a hard master. This guy had been playing both ends against the middle. Here was his reasoning. I am not going to break my neck serving my master. He is going away on some long trip. He may not even come back. He may forget all about me. In the meantime, I've got to do my business and I've got to tend to it. I've got to uh, get my own house to build and I've got uh, money to make and talents to use. But just in case he comes back, I'll make sure I don't lose what he gave me. I'll play it safe and hide his, his talent. End of quote. Whereas the first two got public commendation, this servant got public condemnation. When the master answered, the King James Version doesn't have it, but other translations do, and you might look at yours, there's a question mark at the end of verse 26. It's more like he was saying, so you say that I'm a hard man, that wants something for nothing. Then why did you not at least put my money into the bank where I could get interest? Verse 26, 
But this Lord had answered, but his Lord had answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I would reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For for everyone who has, more will be given to him, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. So So in the end... He lost everything. But then the part that I didn't want to bring up. Because everything I know about salvation is that once you are saved and in the body of believers, you've got your ticket to heaven. I do not want verse 3 to be there. Verse 30. But it is. Look at it. And cast the unprofitable servant into utter outer darkness there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth everywhere in the bible that the outer darkness the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth are terms to describe hell as sister judy comes i want to close by asking you Which one of those do you identify with? Please don't let it be number three. The master has not returned yet, but all indications are that it won't be long now. Just look at what's going on around. So there's still time to turn around. There are many in the body of Christ that are are being deceived right now. They are thinking that they are all right. They said their little prayer. They come to church. But when Christ returns, he will ask them, what have you done with that great gift that I have given you? What have you got to show for it? Today is the last day for the rest of your life, or the first day of the rest of your life. Won't you examine yourself and say, Lord, what am I doing with the talents that you have given me? I'm going to open the altars up and, and I want us to close here at the altar. We still have a few minutes. But I would be remiss if I don't give you an opportunity as everybody bows their heads and starts contemplating on where they are with the Lord. I would be remiss if I don't ask you, where do you stand with the Lord? Are you sure that you are in his flock? Are you being deceived? Have you deceived yourself? Well, today is the first day of the rest of your life. Won't you start it by asking Jesus into your heart?